A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good morning. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, Labour are in meltdown as Keir Starmer faces mounting criticism from inside his own party over his stance on the Middle East conflict, which is a bit confusing. A Gaza ground invasion is on the way, but the Israeli Prime Minister won't say when or how it'll happen. And BBC Newsround is slammed over teaching kids all about white privilege. What are they thinking? Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots going on this morning. We're going to be talking about the Labour Party. We're going to be talking about, of course, the ground invasion in Gaza. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has promised it is going to happen. Uh, he just won't absolutely say when. Uh, the Israeli Defence Force have posted this footage of their targeted raid using tanks in the territory of the northern Gaza Strip. And they said uh, the troops left the area at the end of the mission. So uh, we keep our eyes very much firmly focused on, on the Middle East. But for right now, we're going to take the t- uh, uh, to take that focus back to, to Britain because the Labour Party have suddenly found themselves basically a week after the by-elections uh, where they won substantial uh, wins in, in two areas, in Tamworth, in mid-beds as well. I mean, unbelievable wins, really, uh, which would have suggested to most people that even if you didn't extrapolate it completely, they would certainly be forming the next government. But in the last couple of days, a couple of things have happened. Keir Starmer's now under massive pressure from inside of his own party to actually reveal what he thinks about Gaza, what he thinks about what Israel should do. And now, just this morning, we broke the news that Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, is being accused of plagiarism. In her new book, uh, which is apparently called uh, The Women Who Made Modern Economics, a real page-turner for Christmas, for the Christmas stocking, for the man in your life or the woman in your life or the non-binary uh, gender-neutral person in your life, if you like, um, apparently uh, reproduced material from online blogs, Wikipedia, The Guardian, and a report for by Labour MP Hilary Benn has all been used without acknowledging the sources. Now, I'm going to ask Emma Wolfe, broadcaster uh, and legendary uh, TV presenter. Emma, a very good morning to you. Well, um, there's nothing worse than a plagiarist, in my view. Well, no, but more accurately, um, I'm not legendary anything, but I'm a writer. I've written 10, well, I've written 12 books. I've had yes. 10 books published. It's very, e- I'm wincing. Yeah. It's very easy to do that. Right. It's very easy to lift material, to use it. I mean, we've all done that in essays, but when you do it in a book, yeah. that is absolutely, I mean, you could say this is uh, carelessness, that she yeah. didn't, you know, reference the sources properly. Right. When you have, and it's very easy to check now, yeah, when you have whole sentences yeah. that are literally lifted from a Wikipedia page, from somebody else's book, from other sources, yeah. and this is a, this she is needs a, to explain why. And this is a, a story 
spotted by Financial Times reporters, right? Yep. And what they haven't done is they haven't used plagiarism detection software. They've actually checked it by hand. And yep. they're talking about entire paragraphs yep. rather than just sentences. She's refuting it. A spokesperson for, for Rachel Reeves says that the, the FT's accusations are not uh, correct. However, well, um, that depends mm -hmm. on... Well, we haven't seen the evidence yet. I haven't seen the book. No. Uh, I really, really don't want to have to read it, to be honest. No, I really it don't. Really, it sounds very stupid. <laughs> I mean, who's the women, the women who made modern economics? Are we going to start with Liz Truss there? Uh, well, very possibly so. I mean, presumably she doesn't make it. Why appearance. does it need to be women? Yeah, because That's my she's beef with Rachel it. Reeves. Isn't yes, it? I know, I know. Well, look, this is not a good look for a shadow chancellor, uh, a chancellor no. in waiting but at But we were all. just saying, isn't it interesting that a week after this incredible yes. victory and this incredible kind of wave of optimism from the Labour Party, they've now mired themselves in two kind of potential scandals. This one, which is just broken, but also the Keir Starmer situation, um, where he's kind of got himself into a hell of a mess he... just by answering a question that he was uh, asked on another radio station... Yeah. Um, and he said that he believed that Israel had the right to defend themselves and also they had the right to withdraw uh, water, electricity, food mm. and fuel mm. from the people of Gaza. And then he waited a week and said he didn't mean that. Mm. What's he doing? He's got himself into a real mess the last mm. few days. And actually, the problem is, this is a really difficult... This is the thing that we're all struggling with, is that you can entirely... And he has, he's been clear, he did say Hamas were terrorists. In this interview, yeah. he said Hamas are terrorists. Yeah. However... Many, many Muslim people feel that he is saying, basically, you are indifferent to the suffering of the Palestinian yeah. civilians. Because yeah. he said, you know, yes, they have a right to, um, they have a right to withdraw food and power and aid that is going in. Yes. He, he then does what Kirstama does, which is sort of flip-flop and not be exactly clear what he means, because mm. he's trying to appease all sides. And you can't do but that. It's, but it's particularly difficult for the Labour Party because of their history, because of their more recent mm. history with Jeremy Corbyn being friends with all sorts of questionable organisations. So Keir Starmer, this could be the undoing. You know, exactly as you were saying, a week is a long time in politics. Yeah. A week ago, I was actually sat here with Kev yeah. in, your, in your chair, yeah. um, saying, oh, you know, it's pretty much, you know, the, 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 um, the Conservative Party, the Labour Party have got it in the bag. Yeah, is it it's Absolutely not. And anything well, could happen over I the think, next 12 I months. I think people um, who are considered, I think, would say, and I've been saying it for a while, you know, don't worry about what's being said now. Don't worry about what's happening now. There are a couple of things that Rishi Sunak could do. Yep. I'm not sure setting up an AI safety institute is one of them, by the way. Um, but there are some things utterly random in the do. current yeah. context. There are some yeah. things that he could do. Yep. But there are also a lot of things that can go wrong that for Labour. Wrong. Um, because there and are an awful lot of, of Muslim MPs. They've had meetings yeah. with Keir Starmer. We're going to speak to one of them uh, coming up very shortly. Yeah. Um, and also there's a lot and of councillors who And a lot of his vote resigned. depend on that. A lot right. of his voters depend on that. Yeah. And a lot of people will turn away. It's Labour's to lose rather than... Well, Kevin was telling me that he had a guy on his show yesterday, I think a councillor, a Muslim councillor who was Labour, who said, if Starmer does not move on this, he will lose five million votes. Now, they're not asking for him to reconsider it. They're not asking for him to uh, clarify. They're asking for him to move, which means they want him to call for a ceasefire. And a ceasefire uh, on anybody's grounds at the moment would be appeasing Hamas. Exactly. And Labour are in an almost impossible position. If you yeah. look at their voter base, if you look at their, uh, their, their peers and their MPs, if you look at their, you know, their clear, um, the, the, the targets that they're going for, it's a really, really difficult situation. And the thing is, 90% of the people are not thinking about the general election now. It's no. what happens over the next 12 months, exactly right. as you say. Yeah. It's what... I mean, I feel as though with all the things that are going on in London at the moment and around the world, and, and everybody's eyes, of course, are on Israel and Gaza, but also on their own communities, because yes. people are being affected by this in every place. I mean, I see some terrible stories coming from America. I saw um, um, a, a projected sort of signal of support for Hamas on one of the universities in America 
which I don't think would happen here. But when you see the, the numbers of people marching in London yep. and, and the fear that's going through the Jewish community in Britain and in general, you know, there's a lot to worry about. And, and last week we heard about this Hamas, this former Hamas leader, you know, living quietly. Living in Colindale. You know, living in Barnet, the most yeah. Jewish area mm. of, London, of the whole of the UK. Yeah. Then you hear about, I mean, I was cycling through Mile End, Bethnal Green mm. this morning. There are, there are Palestinian flags everywhere. There yeah. are, you know, there are posters up on all the... It's a really, really, it's very, very local. You're right. It's a strange thing. The, the ground incursion, the ground invasion has not even happened. No. We all, I think we all assumed it was going to be sort of Monday, Tuesday. Mm. It hasn't happened yet. Things are only going to get well, more, at the moment, and more it, it, tense and yeah, febrile at, and inflamed. Exactly. I mean, at the moment we think that the reason it hasn't quite happened is that um, the US is still kind of convincing uh, yeah. Netanyahu not to do it yeah. yet. Yeah. I think also, apart from anything else, I think the Americans want to have some protection in, in place, not just Around for Israel, me. but also for their own forces exactly. in case it all kicks off. Um, also, we've seen that there was some action overnight. Northern Gaza was, it looks like, sort of at least patrolled by a column of tanks that went in from Israel. They say they've now come back out again. Mm. But again, as you say, if there does happen to be a ground incursion mm. and it does happen, that puts even more pressure on Keir Starmer to pick a side because, unfortunately, it's quite difficult at the moment not to pick a side. Yeah, and look, who knows what happens then? You then have fighting within this tiny, tiny yeah. area, this tiny, densely, densely populated city. It's going to be, it's going to be hell on earth, isn't it? Mm. And what, what are we going to do about aid? How are people going to get food and power in? What's yeah. going to happen? Yeah. You know? Exactly right. And I mean, you have to say, uh, despite what um, you know, the Arab world talks about and how they're all against Israel, they're not really in the mood to help out Palestine. Egypt have said, we don't want any Palestinian refugees. The Jordan have said the same. Yep. Imagine if we went, we don't want any Palestinian refugees, we'd all be accused of being the most racist country in the world. Mm. And people would be marching up and down Oxford Street, waving flags and saying, how disgusting. Well, why aren't they demonstrating outside the Egyptian agency uh, embassy and saying, why don't you take some refugees? It's to yeah, well... It's Talk about double standard. It is double standards and it's a very, very emotional issue. Mm. It is. Let's move and on. I, I don't uh, know where Starmer goes with this one, actually. I, I think he's in a bad place. <laughs> I, I think he's <laughs> literally got no good place to go from it. Because no matter what he does, uh, he's going to, you know, he's going to upset somebody. Side or the other. Stephen Pollard, uh, who's the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, says this: "Test for Starmer that will show us just what kind of prime minister he will be," and that's kind of true. And, and I think you're right. This is, a, and I think Stephen Pollard's right. I think this is a moment when he just has to make a bold decision and stick with it and be clear mm. and be eloquent and and try, try. I mean, look, none of us can explain exactly how we feel when it's so complicated yeah. because. Everybody's heart is bleeding for mm. any innocent civilians, as well as feeling that Hamas, that, you know, it was absolute terrorism yeah, yeah. and an, an atrocity. Yeah. Um, but I think Keir Starmer needs to show us how, as you say, how he'll act in that. Bit of leadership is what's called. Bit of leadership, exactly. Yeah. And try and unite that divided party and, the, and those divided voters. Mm, exactly right. Let's talk about uh, Jamie Bolger's killer, John Venables. I know that's a subject that From, you as a mother uh, and yeah, any parent would yeah. want to talk about. Yeah. I find it incredible that the parole board are even considering letting him out. This is a guy. Uh, who committed one of the most heinous crimes uh, in the history of, of this country. Yeah. Uh, when he was himself a child, uh, he's been allowed out twice before and recalled and twice. committed really nasty, nasty, yeah. looking at child abuse yes. online images again. Yes. And has been recalled yeah. and is now being considered again yeah. for parole. Yeah. And guess what? He doesn't want to be in public because there's lots of private yeah. stuff and sensitive information. So he's going to have his hearing in, in yeah. private. And the parole board have agreed to it on the basis that he deserves privacy. He in deserves some way. privacy. So the dignity, the respect, right. the, the, the 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 kind of respect for human life that yeah. he showed nobody, right. and that his victim. I mean, you can't. I mean, 
It's incredible. One also, the Times, uh, uh, which is in this very building here, was one of the uh, applicants to have it held in, yeah. at least not in public, but before uh, reporters, so that reporters could actually report on the event. You know, they're perfectly capable of covering an event without releasing any details of an individual's, you know, and private also, life. There are, there, you know, there are rules in place for that kind of thing. You don't have to ban newspapers. Also, Mike, he's been given anonymity and a new identity mm. for the last 20 yeah. years. What right. his family have gone through for the last 20 years. I remember this happening and I was a, I was a child at the time mm. and this little boy was two years old. I now have a three-year-old and yeah. just thinking about what Denise and the whole family have mm. gone through and now seeing this man being given, and I don't think he will, you know, it's probably unlikely that he will, well, well, you say that. Who knows? But, you know, they have let people out who have never uh, been in any way uh, capable of uh, re reforming themselves yeah. and going back into society. We look at Colin Pitchfork, yeah. the guy who was done for the double murder and rape of two 15-year-old girls on two separate occasions, um, was allowed out. Within literally a couple of weeks yeah. of him being allowed out, um, he was found hanging around a girls' school. Yeah. And you just go, what sort of idiots are the parole board? What sort of things go through their mind but that they think... These kinds of killers can be rehabilitated. Why are there resources going towards people yeah. like this? But also, why is the prison system so broken that mm. all you do is put a 10-year-old yeah. in prison and he comes out or he's, he's you know, 10 years later, mm. he's committing all sorts of yeah. awful crimes online? Also, if the issue is... If there's no rehabilitation, then you might as no. well just lock them up and throw exactly. away the key. And also, if the issue is that, you know, it's a danger to him if he's released and people know who he is, then surely the answer is don't release him. He you is... Know? Do you think he is still, or still, or is he not a, a risk to children of online? Of course, this of man course is. Of course, he is. I mean, he's proven it. He's, he's proven been it. out twice, and he's done it twice. He's so been given a chance you know, and another only chance. An, an insanity yeah. um, clause would let you think that the third time you let him out, he won't do it. And he was denied parole in um, 2020. Mm. So why is he being reheard again in 2023? Because the system says this is what drives no, me insane about the justice system. There are people in it who think, oh well, he must get parole. Uh, he must at least have be heard for parole because that's why... What, every three years? This. Yeah. Ofsted, yeah. Ofsted reports on schools don't happen sort of every, you know, they, they happen every 10 yeah. or 15 years. Right. We're reviewing this prisoner right. who deserves absolutely no time or resources hate me from for the saying justice this, system. But, but we are once again overtaken by the wokists in our society who sit because there like the Howard League for penal reform. You get these people on, they don't think anyone should go to prison at all because they think, oh, well, you know, the reason that they killed that person and butchered them and slit their throat and stabbed them 85 times is because they had a difficult upbringing. Mm, difficult Sorry, upbringing. I'm not buying it. No. Lots of people have difficult upbringings. They don't kill people they as a do. result. They don't. You know, it's time they, they changed the system. Just time they changed the way that this parole board system works. It's too anonymous. Do they genuinely feel that it's John Venables not... is going to come out and be a sort of um, useful member of our society? Is, yeah. is that the idea? Well, they think that everybody deserves another chance. Well, guess he's what? Had, he's, he's had, had two more chances yeah. and he's screwed up both of them. Yeah. So I just don't think that there is any point in, in cultivating any sense that he should be returned to society. No. I mean, apart from anything else, it would cost us even more money, probably. Because he'll because have full-time security. He'd have either full-time security or he would have to be relocated to another place. He would have... And that never works in the end because people have such a visceral hatred of this man, yeah. quite rightly, for what he did, that I just think it's in, impossible for him to be able to live a normal life. I just don't see how he could. He can't get a job, yeah. you know, unless they completely, you know, cook up an entire fake history for the mm. guy. Because what are you going to do? Employ a guy who's got a name that you can't check. But also online, people are always talking about who lives in the local area, yeah. who, who, who he really is and right. all of that stuff. So, yeah. yes, I think it's... Another one uh, for the old uh, justice system, uh, the appeal court currently hearing the case of um, Shemima Begum. Yeah. Um, 
who apparently is going to try every means possible um, to say that now that she's 24, yeah. um, she can't any longer be a citizen of Bangladesh, so she now is completely stateless, so therefore must be allowed to come back here. But this is a more difficult one, and I usually feel pretty strongly, you know, one side or the other. This is a more difficult one. I don't know that a 15-year-old schoolgirl going out... I know... I, I feel as though she was probably exploited and groomed. Maybe. I feel like she did a really blooming stupid thing at yeah. 15. I think, yeah, you know, I don't have much sympathy did, for her. She then did a lot of canny. things which were not blooming stupid, which were actually murderous yeah. and, and cult-related. I know, I know. And she's a very canny operator. I think she knows exactly what she's doing. I don't think she's this innocent little girl. I just... I feel less clear on this. Yeah. I, I, I wonder whether at 15 it is an adventure. You do go off and become a bride of, you know, these in, in, insane ISIS fighters. Mm. It was, yeah, it was a ludicrous thing to do. She's only 24, though. Yeah. The only reason I would say that there is a question mark over the, the decision uh, is that they have allowed a lot of other people back. You yeah. know, I think there's been about 220 or so um, other people who went to fight for ISIS or yeah. uh, went and, and joined the fight for ISIS. And frankly, ISIS, right? when, they're giving, when they're handing out British passports, British citizenship to that Hamas ex-leader mm. who's living in Barnet in a council house yeah. that he's been given a whopping great discount on, you know, really the bar for citizenship is not particularly high. She was a British citizen yeah. until the age of 15, until yeah. she made this appalling mistake. Yeah. But I just, I just think it's, it's slightly inconsistent. I mean, I don't know what she's that. waiting for. I think the best thing for her to do is just to get on a, uh, get on a coach, get herself to Calais, get herself on a dinghy, <laughs> and then nobody knows she's even here. It's not. You funny. know, I know it's not funny, but I mean, I'm afraid yeah. that's the way. That's we the are. way to do it. That's how life. That's how life is now. Yeah. You know, I don't know why she's bothering going through the legal process. Just get on a dinghy, and nobody will know you're even here. Yeah. Might have a room on the big my advice for her. Might, like, no, don't take my advice seriously, obviously, because that would be wrong. Uh, Emma, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Emma Wolf there. Uh, coming up, uh, we're going to continue our discussion on Sakir Starmer, what he does about his stance on the Israel-Hamas situation, because after 38 Labour MPs have signed a parliamentary motion calling for an immediate ceasefire to the conflict, Starmer doesn't really know what to do. He's still defending uh, the right of Israel to defend itself. But what is going to happen? Uh, we're going to be joined uh, by Labour MP uh, for Birmingham, Perry Barr, Khalid Mahmood. Uh, Khalid, uh, very good morning to you. Um, I know you've had meetings Hi, with uh, Sir Keir Starmer. Um, tell us first of all about the meeting. Was it, uh, was it friendly? Was it fiery? Was it touchy? Was it edgy? It was very friendly. Uh, I think it was a meeting to lay some of the issues that we want to talk about, to lay, uh, to sort of put forward our concerns that our constituents have. Uh, in terms of what's going on, uh, you know, the horrific events of the 7th of October where, uh, you know, over 1,200 Israeli uh, men, women and children were killed uh, and what's continually going on in terms of Gaza now, where you have a population of people who essentially are being used as a shield by Hamas uh, and we want to try and get some sort of normality to them, i.e. just in the desperate situation that they are getting food uh, getting some water to them, getting some electricity to hospitals so they can be supported. And how serious is the threat by uh, what we are told members of his shadow cabinet uh, who say they will resign unless he changes his position? Not, not tempers it, not kind of clarifies it, but actually changes his position. I don't think that's the case. I've not heard that at the meeting yesterday that we were at uh, and nobody raised those issues. I think uh, it was a positive meeting. Uh, we, we raised issues. Uh, we were listened to. Everybody in the meeting had a, made a contribution. And then Sakir responded to that. So did Angela. 
Uh, and so I think it was a positive meeting. We are then uh, going to follow up with other meetings uh, as the situation develops. Uh, but really all we want to do is to look at how we can support uh, the people in Gaza currently uh, and how do we isolate Hamas from all of that. So what did you ask Sir Keir Starmer to do yesterday? What was the outcome, shall we say, of your meeting? Well, the, the, but there's, a, there's no one outcome. What we're doing is having a continuous dialogue, which is what we called for. Uh, and what we're going to do is carry on continuing with that dialogue uh, to ensure uh, how we can support the concerns of our constituents, uh, which is about the humanitarian issue uh, in Gaza and how, how we move forward on that. Yeah, but... Keir Starmer claims that when he said that he believed that Israel has the right uh, to operate a siege, cutting off power, cutting off water, right, he says he wasn't answering that question, even though that was the question he answered. Do you believe him? Well, look, he's made a, a clear uh, sort of clarification on that. Uh, and yes, uh, I think people do believe him, because that's exactly yeah, what Do you believe said. him, though? Uh, and he's a, he's a human rights lawyer. He, he has said continuously that in terms of human rights... Uh, and international law, people have got to uh, be able to work within those frameworks and you can't go outside that. Yeah, but he said he was answering the previous question. It took him a week to clarify that he didn't say what he had said. Do you know what the previous question was? What was the previous question? The previous question was, Sakir Starmer, what is a proportionate response in your view? Right? His answer was, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation, obviously. Everything should be done within international law, but I don't want to step yeah. away from the sort of core principles that Israel has a right to defend itself and Hamas bears responsibility for these terrorist acts, which is clearly an answer to the question that was put immediately before the answer, which is, a siege is appropriate, Sakir, cutting off power, cutting off water. He says, yes, it is. Look, he's clarified that situation. We want to move forward. And what we're doing as, as a group of Muslim MPs, and of course, there are a number of other MPs who are not Muslims, but who have a lot of people uh, in their constituency who have concerns about what's currently going on in Gaza. So there's a lot of people in the party who have concerns. And what we want to do is to work through those concerns, uh, united and together, uh, and how we can move forward. That's what the Labour Party is trying to do. But do you want him to issue another clarification or another statement about what he believes there should be? Should there be? Are you asking no. him to say there should be a ceasefire? We have, have, have had discussions. Uh, yesterday there was a statement from Sir, some, from Sir Keir, saying clearly that we need to have some pauses uh, in what's going on uh, in order to try to make sure that we can get to those people who need that aid urgently medical medicine and hospitals that need those support in terms of keep the hospitals going. So we're quite clear that what we want to do is provide aid uh, to those people and a, 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 and a military pause, uh, i.e. Uh, stop in cessation in violence for a short while to allow us to do that. That's what he said yesterday. So you're happy to have a humanitarian pause rather than a ceasefire? Look, what we're happy to do is to see how the situation progresses. Anything that gets aid to people in Gaza is a good thing. And I think what we want to do is to continue to support those people who are in a very, very difficult position. Uh, so at the moment, you're not calling for a ceasefire? Uh, no, what we've said is that clearly we want to move towards... I, I personally called for a ceasefire, uh, and that's fine for me to do that. Uh, but what we're saying is that 
our points are that there should be ultimately a ceasefire, but we have to go along that road to get to a reasonable position where both parties are in, in a state where they can actually accept a ceasefire to move forward. There's no point calling for a ceasefire if we can't get both parties to sit down and agree to it. Right. But you've done that, though. I've done that on Monday in Parliament. But you've just said there's no uh, point to doing it. Sorry? You just said there's no point to doing it, though. No, I didn't say it. I said there are pauses at the moment, uh, which is what has been called for. We want to get those in operation so we can provide aid. Once we we got some of those in and, the, and the confidence builds up that we can do that properly, what the real issue is, how do we isolate Hamas from the people in uh, Gaza? And that's what we need to do in the long term to give confidence to have a real ceasefire to move forward. But we cannot put the lives uh, of, at stake of the people in Gaza. We must continue to supply aid to them, which is what they need in order to just survive. So you're not asking for Keir Starmer to call for a ceasefire today? No. What we've done in the past is quite clear. We've had a positive discussion yesterday and we will have more meetings uh, as the situation uh, grows further. But in the first instance, getting as much aid as possible to Gaza is our objective. And what assurances did, did Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner give you at the end of the meeting yesterday? Well, we, the assurance is that we'll continue to have these meetings, we'll continue to listen and see how we can progress forward. That is what we asked for, that is what we've got, and so therefore this is the direct, direct uh, uh, dialogue uh, with the leadership in order to look at the situation and see how we can continue to support that. So Keir has made it quite clear that he wants the issue in Gaza to be settled in accordance with the international law, and that's what we should support. Why do you think it took him a week to clarify that? I don't think he took him over a week. He made a final statement a week later, but there were certainly, uh, if you look at the tweets that he made, there were a number of tweets that he made in between that as well. Uh, and I think he thought that that would clarify, but in, if it didn't, then finally, I suppose, he decided that he should make it, make it clear, and that's what he did. That's what so, he did. So does he now say that Israel putting Gaza under siege, i.e. stopping electricity, stopping fuel, stopping food, stopping water, is right? He never said that. I mean, that's what he he's did. saying. He said, he, what he's saying is that's not what it, the way he wanted it to be delivered. Right. It came, perhaps, it, answering two questions together. Uh, things got conflated. He said within international law, which is what he said at the time, but what we want Sakir to do is as listen to the issues that most of our constituents have in relation to how we can support the people of Gaza. Nobody in, in, in my party wants to support what Hamas has done. We all condemn the actions of Hamas, but we need to ensure that we can carry on supporting the people uh, who are the most distressed at the moment uh, and in fear of their life every second, essentially, okay. uh, because the supplies are not getting to them. OK. I'll give you a chance to change the subject. Have you read Rachel Reeves' new book? No, I haven't yet. It's really good. It's uh, Apparently, it's all about the women who made modern economics. I'm looking forward to getting it for my Christmas stocking. She's been well, accused I'll, of... Uh, I'll try and get that. We'll she's, see she's, if I can read See if you can get me a signed copy, but make sure she signs it, not somebody else. She's been accused of plagiarism this morning, Kelly. Well, I've not seen the book yet at the moment. I know that Rachel uh, is, is a fantastic person. She has huge expertise in this matter. Uh, and I and sort of... I don't know the ins and outs of that book, so uh, until I read it and see, 
Uh, I can't really comment. OK. Good to talk to you, Khalid Mahmood. Thank you very much uh, you. indeed. Uh, he says Keir Starmer has been very clear uh, that he didn't mean what he said, uh, but now he does. So that's all right then, apparently, maybe. For the future. There'll be another meeting, though, uh, and we'll see how it goes after that, shall we? Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. And now it's time for this. You remember when the NHS used to get clapped just for doing their jobs? You remember that I wasn't particularly in favour of all that sort of behaviour, people going out on the street banging pots and pans together and clapping and doing all of that stuff. Uh, but it was a very different time then. It was a very weird time. Uh, and it's now become quite clear, particularly uh, since half the NHS has been on strike for half the year, um, that perhaps we shouldn't be uh, exactly deifying every single person that works in the NHS. And I'm sorry to bring you some bad news, uh, but we've got a pretty nasty little story for you here today. And it's about a doctor who claimed £10,000 in sick pay uh, while moonlighting in two other jobs for the NHS. She basically worked in two hospitals 160 miles apart. Uh, she's been up before a medical tribunal uh, who have ruled that she is guilty of serious misconduct. However, unfortunately, they've also ruled that she's allowed to keep her job. Her name is Tracy Landu Landu. She's 30 years of age. Uh, she was working in an NHS trust in Liverpool, uh, in Merseyside, I should say. Uh, she claimed £10,000 in sick pay. Uh, but while she was off sick, she decided it'd be a good idea uh, to do a whole load of shifts over in the Pilgrim Hospital in Boston uh, and the COVID-19 ward at Lincoln County Hospital where she rigged in uh, a load more money. It seems to me that the problem with the NHS here, and I know it's a very big organisation, I know people will say, well, bad things happen in big organisations. Yes, they do. But it's too big and they don't know what one hand is doing when the other hand is doing something else. And that's the problem. You shouldn't be able to claim sick pay while working for the same organisation, should you? I don't think I could do it here. I don't think I could claim to be sick and then decide to go off to another part of the building and do some more work for somebody else while being paid to be off sick. That wouldn't happen. In no private situation would that happen. So I don't think we'll be saying any good things about the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service in Manchester. She's been found guilty of serious professional misconduct. She has been suspended. She will have to pay the money back. But she's allowed to go back to work, surely. She's been proven not to be a very reliable doctor. That's what I would say. She's just taking the mic. Now, welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here, because we've been talking about Keir Starmer uh, this morning. He's in uh, the deep doo-doo once again. He's suddenly gone from being the king of the by-elections last Thursday uh, into routing the Conservatives at the next election. However, it now would appear that he's dropped Labour back into the mire because nobody's quite sure what he means when he says that Israel should be able to defend itself. We've just been talking to Khalid Mahmood MP about what was going on. Uh, but the question for the Conservatives now is at the next election, what tack will they take on a whole bunch of things, including tax? Rishi Sunak froze income tax thresholds when he was Chancellor, and that's not expected to go down well with voters in more than 40 Tory seats who would get dragged into the top tax ban. Joining me now is Director of Delta Poll, Joe Twyman. Joe, welcome to the show. Hi. Very nice to see you. Uh, here we are in our brand new headquarters of the Independent Republic, which seems to have grown exponentially since you and I started talking. Um, but there's a polling, uh, some polling in this morning where it says the government has brought tax up to its highest level since records began 70 years ago. Would this put you off voting Conservative at the next election? Yes, 73%. No, 27%. It's a very kind of movable landscape at the moment, isn't it? 
It's come round to that time of year again, and uh, and we we have it every so often. Recently, we were told that uh, uh, that support for the European Convention on Human Rights or, or abandoning support mm. for the European Convention on Human Rights would cost the Conservatives nine seats at the next election. Right. It's ten years since we heard that support for gay marriage would cost the Conservatives thirty seats at the next election, and now we have uh, supposed data showing that uh, that this particular position on tax will cost the Conservatives 40 seats Mm. at the next election. What all of these have in common is they're largely meaningless. The reasons that people vote are numerous, and tax does come into that, but the idea that you can point to 40 seats and say, oh, well, the margin of victory here is smaller than the number of people who will be moved into uh, the, a different tax right. bracket, and so therefore they will vote differently, yeah. is for the birds. I mean, also, the way, the, the, the way that sort of tax um, has been looked at in the past has always been in relation to how much money you're giving up out of what you make. Whereas because inflation has been so kind of rampant, those arguments have kind of disappeared in a way, haven't they? And it's control of inflation. Yeah. When you ask people what should be the government's top priority, that comes right. top by some distance. Yeah. Four times as many people want to prioritise uh, controlling inflation mm over reducing taxes, and twice as many want to grow the economy over reducing taxes. Only one in 10 people says that reducing taxes should be the government's right. top priority. So every, the idea that that's going to make the changes yeah. is Because every occasion. now and again, even I, and, and I'm sure you do as well, get shocked by something. I, this was last week, just before the rains came. I thought, oh, I know. Um, I've got this raincoat that I haven't cleaned for a while. I'll probably have to wear it soon. I'll go and get it cleaned. 18 quid they charged me just to clean a raincoat. I was like, really? 18 quid? And, and I mean, I use this dry cleaner all the time, and I was like, that seems really expensive. And he's like, well, it's, it's been that for a while. And I'm kind of going, you know, every now and again, you see something in a shop and you go, I can't quite believe how much they're charging for this. And people, I think, are much more concerned about that than how much they're paying in tax. Absolutely. When you ask people what's the most important issue facing the country and what's the most important issue facing them and their families, the cost of living mm. comes top by some distance. Now, mm. obviously, some people will say, well, tax feeds into that but not in the same way that inflation no. does, in the way that people view these right. things. And in terms of looking back at last Thursday and the two by-elections that were very low turnouts, you know, an awful lot of Tory voters clearly not going out to vote because they couldn't bring themselves to do so. Um, fairly normal by-election um, behaviour, I suppose you would say. Can you see a time in the past where something like this has happened where people have just lost faith? Is it like sort of 97, I suppose, is the question? Well, that, that's, the main, uh, that's the main question that really everyone, yeah. is, uh, everyone is asking. Both of us are old enough to remember yeah. the 1997 Absolutely right. election and, crucially, the run-up to that. I remember the party at the People's Palace. I'm yeah. that old. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think there are similarities, but the degree to which Tony Blair personally and the Labour Party generally were ahead of the Conservatives mm. and John Major is not in the same league this time around. Mm. So, yes, people are uh, not as enthused by, uh, by Keir Starmer and by Labour as they were in the run-up to 1997. Mm. But the situation is very different then, both in terms of Labour itself yeah. and in terms of politics generally. Right. But the question is, is there enough enthusiasm? Are Labour going to be where they need to be in order to get that majority? And they need to gain 124 seats in mm. the next election. And indeed, that's a net gain, so that means holding on yeah. to Tamworth and mid-beds next yes. time as well. If they're just to get a majority of two, and that kind of gain has mm. only been achieved once in British post-war mm. political history, and that was Tony Blair that... Uh, and how important will Scotland it. then be in that equation? Because presumably if they could get back all those seats that the SNP won, 
Um, that would be a significant step forward for them. Yeah, hugely important. They have one seat in Scotland. Yeah. Sorry, two seats now because they won right. the by-election recently. They have two seats in Scotland now. There are more than 50 up for grabs. So if they're able to, uh, if they're able to bring about a significant change in Scotland that leads them to And is there any indication that they are doing that? Because I'm not so sure there is. I mean, obviously, there were, they, they, I mean, of course, they would say that, the SNP, but there were issues around the candidate who had stepped down because she was driving around in a train, you know, spreading COVID all over the country, and so people were pretty upset about that. Um, is there any sense that the SNP has kind of lost its way up there? Yeah, the, uh, the by-election that we saw in Scotland was really, if you like, the worst-case scenario for the Scottish National Party. And so you would expect that come a general election, the situation will be different. But what mm. we don't know is when that general election arrives, what will SNP voters who voted, previous SNP voters who voted yes at the Scottish referendum, will they switch over mm. to Labour? Will Labour start to claw back some of those yes voters, which up until now have stayed entirely with the SNP? Or will those SNP yeah. voters sit on their hands and not vote? Or will they stick with the SNP? We don't know and we can't conclude that from yeah. the by-election. But that could be not just a major impact on what happens in Scotland, but that could have that, the answer to that question could have a major impact what, about what happens across the whole yeah. of the UK. OK. And you've only got about 20 seconds to answer this, but Reform UK, any um, good news for them in any of this? Uh, I wouldn't say so, but perhaps they'll be able to exert some kind of pressure when they point to how uh, they did relatively well in uh, in mid-beds. Okay, great stuff. Joe, thank you very much indeed. Joe Twyman there uh, giving us the lowdown uh, on the way it is at the moment. It's going to change, of course, over the course of time, uh, particularly over the course of the next few weeks and months, because um, even yesterday, Sir Keir Starmer was calling for an election, uh, but he's not going to get one. He's not going to get one anytime soon. Not yet. And in fact, he might not want one now because of what's going on. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got loads going on. Don't forget, uh, you can get in touch with us as and when you wish. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, we're going to talk about the BBC coming up in this hour because they're under fire yet again. Uh, once again, they've got it completely wrong. Newsround published an article uh, aimed at children promoting the idea of white supremacy. I mean, you literally could not make this stuff up. To make matters worse, the article was written by controversial academic Kehinde Andrews, who thinks the late Queen was a symbol of white supremacy and who once compared Churchill to Hitler. Why on earth are our taxes funding this nonsense? In order to find out just why the BBC at the moment can't seem to get anything right at all, um, it's Rafe Heidelmanku, broadcaster, historian and senior fellow at the New Culture Forum. Rafe, very nice to see you. Welcome. I know you've been here when I haven't been here, but this for the first time. Great to see you in situ. In Welcome person. back. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Um, you know, the culture wars go on. Um, the streets are filled with, uh, with demonstrators who are on the side of Palestine, uh, many of them ripping down pictures of, of, uh, of kidnapped babies off the bus shelters and signs around the, the, the capital. There's a lot for us to get into, um, but let us start off with the BBC, uh, who are still in plenty of trouble about their inability to call Hamas terrorists. Um, <laughs> they've now decided it's a great idea to educate the nation's children about white privilege. I mean... Yeah, what I mean, is look, wrong with them? This is just, you know, the, the latest example of the degree to which our institutions have been captured by radical ideology. Yeah. But this is particularly pernicious because, you know, in schools, you're not allowed to promote contested ideology, like right. critical race theory, yes. white privilege and gender ideology. Mm. But here we have the national broadcaster mm. doing precisely that. And we're paying for it. Mm. We're paying for our children to be indoctrinated yes. 
in the most heinous, corrosive sort of ideology that stokes division amongst people. Yes. I mean, you go and tell white working class boys that they are um, beneficiaries of white privilege, mm. the most underachieving segment yes. of our population. You go and, and tell... And the most underrepresented uh, and most group underrepresented. of people, by the way, at the BBC. Yeah, because well. the BBC claims to be diverse, but of course it isn't, as I will say. The problem with the BBC is everybody works there is middle class. It doesn't matter what colour you are, uh, they've all got a middle class background. They've got no working class kids there at all. Well, and of course, on the problem is the BBC doesn't have adverts, but if you switch over to a channel with adverts, you won't... If you see a single white person in a commercial break, yes. I'll give you five pounds. Yeah, you know? right. And there's... there's and think about... I won't be those... making very much money, though. <laughs> <laughs> think of all of those, you know, white young graduates who can't get jobs mm. because they don't fit the diversity quotas yes. that are now being required. Right. You know, if anything, you can say that there's a degree of black privilege yeah. that's now present well, in our culture is. today. Well, there is. I mean, I, only the other day, I don't know if you saw, uh, Carol Sakura, our, our good friend, the, the cancer doctor, put out a tweet saying that he discovered that there was a job being offered in the NHS. I can't remember exactly where, but it was for a diversity champion or something. 120 grand a year. And you're kind of going, where is all the money going? Why are all these people telling us that they haven't got any money when they're spending that kind of money on these kinds of jobs? And you can be pretty damn certain that a white working class kid is not going to get that job. Yeah, absolutely right. And there's another issue here. You know, the BBC has said recently how important impartiality mm. is with the Palestine-Israel well, conflict. Well, they know about that. Well, you know, where's the impartiality in this white privilege mm. article where they've actually gone to Kahindi Andrews, you yeah. know, the, 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 a pseudo-intellectual race-baiting right. race-grifter yeah. who has done more to poison the debate around these topics. A man who, as you said, regards the Queen as the epitome yeah. of white prejudice. He gets plenty Very, of work out of the BBC. Though, yeah, I mean, he? this man wrote a book called The Psychosis of Whiteness. He said being racist is as British as a cup of tea, despite the fact that Britain's been proven to be one of the world's mm. least racist countries, and racism is far higher in Africa and Asia yeah. than it is in, in Europe and in, right. the, in the Anglosphere. And this man is allowed to spout his rot right. without anyone actually being put on the other side to give some degree of well, well, one of the, the issues that, that I talk about a lot is that what we appear to have imported in this country is not just a lot of people from different parts of the world, but an awful lot of sort of feuds from different parts of the world. I mean, we've seen, you know, fighting on the streets of Leicester between, you know, different groups uh, of ethnic minorities from the Indian subcontinent. We've seen the same in Bradford. We've seen the same in Birmingham. You know, you see these kind of international feuds reaching far and away beyond the, the, what you might call the homelands of, of, of people who have come to decide to make Britain their home. But at the end of the day, what they haven't done is assimilated into British culture. Yeah, I know. I mean, does a week go past when you don't have a mayor or a police commissioner saying diversity is our greatest strength? Yeah. It's the biggest myth that we have. I Divers know. Diversity is not a strength. Right. We've seen that in Leicester. We've seen that on the streets of London just this past week. It's, a, it's our greatest dilemma, actually. Yeah. And when you, can, when you combine it with a failed policy of multiculturalism and mass immigration, yeah. diversity, diversity, as we're seeing, is actually one of our greatest weaknesses. Absolutely right. And we've seen it most recently with these Palestinian demonstrations, haven't we? Because London has been literally taken over because uh, it wasn't just the Saturday um, demonstration during the day. I found uh, on Sunday night that there was a massive demonstration uh, over in Tower Hamlets which is obviously, you know, a very Muslim area. Uh, it's got a Muslim MP. Um, there's Palestinian flags flying there. Um, but all the roads were basically at a standstill because there was some kind of impromptu demonstration going on, which the police apparently didn't know anything about. But nobody could get anywhere. Well, look, let's, let's be clear about this. You know, what I would like to know is, where were all of these crowds, actually, when we had the Syrian regime waging war on Syrian people? Mm. Where were these crowds right. when we had Iran brutally crushing Iranian protesters? Yeah. Where were they when Saudi Arabia was bombing people in Yemen yeah. and killing children and the UN accusing them of human rights abuses? Yes. You know, you have the... There are two million... One of the things that I always want to know is Palestine is a tiny sliver of land with only two million people, right? Yeah. 
Why do they, does everyone get exercised about that when you have 12 million Muslim Uyghurs in China that no one yes. ever protests about? The Rohingya Muslims in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. in, in, in Myanmar and Burma, are, are called the world's most persecuted minority. Yeah. There's complete silence Nobody when anyone that. attacks Muslims, except for when, is, when Israel does it, when the Jews. Yeah. There's a deeply anti-Semitic core to all of this, and no one can deny that. Mm. And let's call it racist, because that's what it is. You know, anti-Semitic is somehow put in a different box from racism, but it shouldn't be. It's the same thing. Meanwhile, there was another protest, I think, outside Scotland Yard, uh, accusing the police of uh, not actually clamping down on anti-Semitism, because we've seen, haven't we, all over social media over the past few days, groups of young people in particular, which is particularly disturbing, groups of young people walking up to where these posters have been put up of of the missing uh, and and the dead and hostages who have been taken to Gaza, some of them children, babies, and these people tearing these pictures off. Tearing them down and and also actually drawing drawing Hitler moustaches on the faces of young children hostages. It's a very odd phenomenon, isn't it? I was recording a show yesterday with the New Culture Forum and one of our panellists a young English Christian girl said she was stopped last weekend on the street by two people who said in a very threatening manner, are you a Jew? Mm. She refused to answer and they screamed free Palestine at her. I mean, the thing is, I've got a lot of time for Mark Rowley, the police commissioner normally. I think he's doing a great deal better than Cressida Dick. But this was a complete failure. You know, it's basically, it's made Jews feel that they can't trust the police. It's eroded all of our trust. It's emboldened the radicals on all of this. And it's made people believe that there's two-tier policing. Yes. Because just contrast that policing compared to the to the Sarah Everard vigil yes. in Clapham well, exactly for example. Right. And or, also, the, or the lockdown protest, for And example. also, when you see the, 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 sort of the Metropolitan Police falling over themselves backwards to try and justify why they haven't arrested somebody who has, to all intents and purposes, been flying uh, an ISIS flag. Now, to those who may be slightly uninitiated, it looks like an ISIS flag. The guy waving it is shouting ISIS slogans. It looks like an ISIS scenario. Um, oh, yeah. The Metropolitan well, Police say, oh, no, that's the flag of Islamic faith. And then when they shout for jihad, even though outside of a mosque they're doing it, at the behest of a prescribed terrorist group, which is a prescribed terrorist group in almost all Muslim countries in the world, not, unfortunately, in this one, uh, they say, oh, no, they didn't mean holy war. They just meant, you know, yeah. make yourself a better and person. And they're saying that behind us, uh, in front right. of the sign that says Muslim calls for Muslim armies. Right. I mean, the to police, rise up. The police absolutely treated protesters with kid gloves over all, all of this. Mm. And, you know, there's no other way that you can interpret jihad in this context than the fact that it means for armed struggle and they're right. calling for war against, against, the, against the Israelis. And it's, it's a complete outrage. And if you think about it, what we've seen really is an attempt to get people waving the English flag mm. in London, the capital of England. Yeah. They were walked up to and said, if you put one word yeah. out of place, you'll be arrested. You're going to get arrested. And yet they allowed all of this to go ahead. Yeah. There were only 10 arrests made during that protest. Mm. There were 275 arrests during the Notting Hill Carnival. Yeah. There were 150 arrests at the lockdown protest that we yeah. had in 2020. And when EDL had a march with far fewer people, another 150 were arrested. Why were only 10 people arrested? And also, why were there only 1,000 police protest- uh, p- policing that? Yeah. There are 35,000 police officers in the well, Met. They're, they're so used to doing things like the Notting Hill Carnival and the coronation. Yeah. And they can ask for help from other police forces too. I think that's an absolute scandal. And oh. I want to see how many police are going to be present this weekend. Well, I think that's going to be a very good point because we're going to be leading up to this weekend obviously on the show today but also on tomorrow because we're also leading up to uh, you'll see that I'm wearing a poppy remember Sunday's coming you know we've already seen some activity around the cenotaph we've already seen Palestinian uh, protesters climbing up statues and putting Palestinian flags uh, in the hands of you know historic figures Um, it's going to be a problem if the police don't get it right and one of the things that I found astonishing was that on I think Monday morning uh, they put out a, uh, a picture of somebody carrying a banner which actually said I fully support Hamas right and asked the question rather ludicrously, were you there? Did you see it? So which I said, well, I thought you guys were there. 
Why didn't you just lift him? It's the degree to which they're trying to get us to do the job for yeah. them on Twitter. Have you seen this person? Well, if you had more police on the ground, you would see all of this happening. And yes, this weekend has to be the test, a time for people to actually have faith restored in mm. the police. And as you know, the fact is, when you see, you know, veterans being arrested by three policemen for retweeting a humorous image of a yeah, flag, right. uh, and yet when someone is actually waving a jihadi flag, mm. not only that, when you have protesters being held down off of scaffolding by yeah. the police and then handed back yeah. the Palestinian flag to, and asked to go on their way, mm. it really erodes all of our trust in the police and it does suggest that they have one view when it comes to mm. certain political issues yes. and another view when it comes to other issues. Exactly right. Let's talk about The Guardian. Uh, always good for a laugh on these occasions. You know, they fired their cartoonist, finally, because they thought that he'd <laughs> gone one um, anti-Semitic trope too far, uh, even though he wasn't sure why. Um, apparently, they've been slammed over a piece that they published suggesting that Israel has weaponized the Holocaust. Yeah, this is remarkable, you know. It's just further evidence of the dark streak of anti-Semitism that runs through The Guardian. Mm. You just have to speak to Melanie Phillips. Yeah. The amount of anti-Semitism she encountered at The Guardian made her go from left to right. Mm. But to publish this in the same month that we've had the first pogrom of the 21st century yeah. against Jews. Yeah. You know, just this week we saw you know, Jewish students in university in, in America sheltering in a library as a gang outside were banging on the door to get in, mm. baying for blood. Mm. I think it's absolutely out outrageous yeah. that this is being done. And the Holocaust is relevant in that context because people must realise Palestinian hatred towards the Jews didn't begin in 1948 no. with the State of Israel. The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, the, the, the senior Palestinian figure, was in cahoots with Hitler. Yeah. He went to visit Hitler. There are pictures he of them together, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, he helped to form a Muslim SS brigade to exterminate Jews in the Balkans. Yeah. The, the, the Hamas comes out of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was founded by Nazi sympathizers who actually translated Mein Kampf into My Jihad yeah. in, in Arabic. Right. And uh, when, Obviously and, didn't mean uh, holy war, though, right? It didn't, yeah, it didn't mean, no, it didn't an, mean an, that, an emotional no. struggle, didn't yes. it? Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at all, even Yasser Arafat and the PLO have their roots yeah. going back to the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. And there were pogroms committed against Jews in Palestine long before the creation of the State of Israel. So people who are going on these marches thinking this is all about 1948, they are useful idiots for the anti-Semitic cause. And it's about time more people actually spoke up about that and exposed this virulent hatred for what it actually is. Yes, well, thankfully, we've got the October Declaration out there, which, um, which we spoke to Laura Dosworth about the other day, signed by an awful lot of people, including me. And me, uh, myself Which too. does, in fact, give the right of people to say openly, I support Israel, uh, not only as a nation, uh, but as an entity. I support Israel for what it is, and, and I don't support um, the absolute demonization of uh, Jewishness and, and a Jewish state, because it's entirely wrong. But I think the trouble now is, is that I've seen it certainly in America, not so much here, but it's beginning to come, come clear, that the, the anti-Semitism is kind of fueled, if you like, by this social justice movement, where you've seen, I think in, uh, I think, I think it was a, 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 a university in Washington, um, overnight, um, you know, projecting a message in support, basically, of Hamas, um, on the on the on the building itself, you know, and universities like Columbia um, and uh, Harvard and even Yale, places where you would expect there to be enlightenment, have completely closed off intellectual thought. You know, they have got lecturers there basically decrying uh, Israel. You've got Jewish students frightened to go around the campus for fear of being beaten up. It's extraordinary. And this whole kind of Black Lives Matter movement has kind of morphed into this left-wing support for the Palestinian cause. And, of course, we know why. It's because, of course, the left 
treat the, the Jews as being at the pinnacle of the capitalist world. Right. All of those terrible tropes and stereotypes right. people had of, of anti-Semitism, of there being a Jewish banking conspiracy mm. and the Rothschilds dominating global politics by controlling right. the purse strings. They equate Israel with the Jews and they equate that with capitalism. Mm. And as we know from the left, the two greatest evils for capitalism are America yeah. and Israel, which they regard as being together. And that's why even though Jews have been a persecuted minority, as far as the left are concerned, they're actually, uh, they're actually a predatory state. Yeah, and I mean, where does it end, I suppose, is, is the question, because we've now got Sir Keir Starmer in a bit of trouble uh, because he's declared that Israel have the right to defend themselves. He's now busy falling over himself trying to say that he didn't mean to say that, uh, or at least he didn't mean to infer that they could then also uh, blockade aid and blockade well, food really... and electricity. I don't know how he gets out of this one. Well, this really gets me because you have all of these Muslim MPs and other far-left MPs on his side who... Are, he's, he's done a very good job trying to erase the stains But he obviously hasn't of, of quite Corbyn, managed but he hasn't quite managed. But you're seeing really that this is such a deeply embedded hatred mm. that they have there. But why aren't these people who are calling for a ceasefire calling for Egypt to open up yeah. its borders, you right. know? Or calling for Hamas to actually allow dual nationals right. to leave Palestine. Well, I, I think people are I, aware. There are people with Norwegian passports and other dual nationals mm. who are being prevented from leaving Gaza yeah. by Hamas. Right. And Egypt, of course, now, you know, Owen Jones and others say, oh, Palestine is a big open-air prison. Well one, of those well, prison not, wall, well, one of those prison walls is actually with Egypt. Mm. But General El-Sisi, the president of Egypt, doesn't want to flood the nation with, uh, with militant Islamic fundamentalists. And uh, he's also part of this process whereby the, Isla the Arabic world wants to keep Palestinians mm. in Gaza to keep the independence yeah. cause alive. Right. And they are actually using Palestinian people as pawns. There are thousands mm. of people who may die because of this agenda to keep Palestinians there. They don't want to depopulate the land and therefore give mm. more power to Israel to say, well, there's nobody in exactly. Gaza. But with all of the trillions of, of pounds that the Arab states have from Saudi Arabia to UAE, they could easily build wonderful temporary refugee camps in Egypt to house them, and not just in Egypt and elsewhere. Yeah. They've got the money to do it. They're fine protesting on the streets. Why don't they put their yeah. money where their mouths well, are Jordan and actually do something? did the same. Like the King of Jordan came out and said, we will not take any Palestinian refugees, uh, as, did, as did Egypt. If we said it, we'd be accused of being the most racist country in the world. Well, we shouldn't be taking a single... Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Palestinian refugees. No. They should all be housed within the Arab countries that are now protesting so loudly. Absolutely right. Let's finish up with Rachel Reeves. Uh, just when things couldn't get any worse for the Labour Party, the Shadow Chancellor uh, has been accused of plagiarism. She's got a new book out, uh, which I have to say doesn't exactly fill me with much excitement for my Christmas book list, but it's something to do with the women uh, of the world uh, economic history or something like that. Uh, but she's been accused <laughs> of nicking loads of stuff from The Guardian, uh, from Wikipedia, uh, and even from Hillary Benn without attribution. Well, I haven't, I haven't seen that story. I'm not surprised. I mean, that's a book that will put me to, to sleep when, it will. in the best of times. Yeah. I've also found Rachel Reed's voice is very good at night time if I'm <laughs> suffering from insomnia. So the yes. combination of those two. Yeah, actually. maybe if you can buy, if you get the book, get her reading it. Um, and that would it could be, be a bestseller just for that I mean, fact alone. A very good night's sleep. Absolutely right. Rafe, great to see you. Rafe uh, Hadel, Mancou there. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, we are in the midst of what can only be described as culture war, ladies and gentlemen, because we know um, that whatever we do, uh, here in Britain, we will be denounced by the left. Even the people who actually live here from the left will denounce Britain for doing what it is that we do so horribly wrong. White privilege is a terrible thing. Empire should be a disgrace. And, of course, our foreign policy, because we support Israel, is an absolute nightmare. Well, we'll see how it all goes this weekend. But coming up, we're going to move on to the government's prison stats because they came out this morning and they've told us that the number of offenders behind bars has gone up 8% in April to June compared to the same time last year. No wonder our prisons are bursting at the seams. Well, here's what the Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk, says he's going to do about it. And it is a fact that under this government, the most serious and dangerous offenders are being locked away for longer. In the case of rapists, average sentences are nearly a third longer than in 2010. This is the right thing to do to keep the public safe. But to continue to put the worst offenders away for longer, we must use prison better and always so that there are sufficient spaces to lock up those most dangerous criminals. We must reform the justice system so it keeps the worst of society behind bars, rehabilitates offenders who will be let out, and presents the least serious, lowest risk of offenders with a path away from a life of crime. It's always great watching uh, Tory ministers talking about what they plan to do as if they've only just got into the job. Um, Alex Chalk, OK, he hasn't been in justice for that long, but, you know, they have been in power for 13 years. Uh, he thinks that there's now time to reform the prison system. Great, brilliant. Um, I'm now joined by a former prison guard who works at Holloway in Pennsylvania, turned comedian, uh, Ava Vidal. Is it Vidal or Vidal? Vidal. Vidal, yeah. how are you? I'm OK, thank nice you. Nice to see you. That's a tough old job, isn't it? Uh, it, it can be. It depends on how you conduct yourself. Yeah. Was it... Because I'm quite confused about Holloway because it was a women's prison, wasn't That's it? That's right. And has it now been switched to it's, a men's prison? It's, it's still nothing. It's housing. Oh, is it? Have, yeah. they, have they shut it? Yeah. I used to drive past it every day and think, God, that looks bad, because it's kind of that Victorian prison look, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it was actually originally built as a hospital. Pentonville's right. a Victorian prison. Right, OK. It's a radial prison. Yeah, so how long did you work there? When did you work there? Uh, I worked there, gosh, quite some time ago now. I've, I left the prison service a good 20 years ago, but I still go into prisons now with charities right. Right. Um, to match inmates with jobs. Because mm. I think for most people, having never been in a prison, it's quite yeah. hard to imagine what life is like. We had Peter Hitchens in on Monday. Um, oh. He's done a show on Channel 4 uh, where he and about seven or eight other sort of minor celebrities were put in jail, basically, to see how they would react. Is that the Stanford Project thing? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, okay. It's called Locked Up, I think, something okay. like that. Anyway, he said it was really quite surprising how awful it was because yeah. people don't realise that having their sort of... It's not even so much having your freedom taken away, but it's just having all your uh, normal working life activities taken away, that you have no power to do anything, you do what you're told all the time, you have no freedom really to make a decision, yeah. you can't really talk to people. And then, I mean, I don't know what prison should be like, really. I mean, I've been inside 
prisons in America. I've been inside prisons here. Um, I've been in, you know, death row places. I mean, yeah. it's it's all pretty horrid. And some of the people in those prisons are pretty horrid as well. Absolutely. But equally, we don't seem to be getting it right, do we? No, not at, not at all. Not at all. I think what happens is we, we get these justice ministers that come in and it's their brief, it's their portfolio, and they want to put a stamp on the prison service. Right. So, like, for instance, when Chris Gay- Grayling came in, he was like, ban books from prison. Right. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, why I think I was you? at the Telegraph at the time. I was like, no, right. you can't do that. that yeah. it, do you know what you'll be doing to prison officers if you do that? Yeah. They need to have books to read. They need yeah. to be able to educate themselves. I mean, And the, do they? Do, is there, are there people who want to do that? Yeah, yeah, loads of people do want to do that. I mean, they just want to get, they want to get out of their cells and they want to have something to do. Right. So, I, I, yeah, I think that this whole draconian... You know, the, the punishment is loss of liberty. Mm. It's not actually what's in there. It, it, and like you said, it, it's a very hard life. In fact, the people who do best in prison are um, boarding school people. Yeah. The other, <laughs> the other problem is, though, I mean, I'd hate to go to boarding school, by the way. Um, the other thing for me um, is that people say, yes, the loss of liberty is a thing. But other people go, yeah, but surely if you go to prison, it should be a bad experience so you never want to go back in. And I speak to a lot of people who say that, once you're a, a hardened criminal, and a lot of people who go to prison are because they've yeah. committed so much crime yeah. before they even get sentenced to go to do time, yeah. that it doesn't bother them. That they go in because they're maybe protected by gang culture or because they're protected by their own physicality or something, you know, that they're the ones that it doesn't really bother. It doesn't affect them. No, I mean, there were guys I used to speak to and stuff like that at, at Pentaville, and I would say, oh, my gosh, you know, this is like you're in here. It goes, occupational hazard, miss, is what it is. Right. We know that we're going to do bird. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, I've known people years, like that. People know. who have been sort of professional and is, criminals and they they always say, look, yeah. every now and again you're going to get caught. Yeah, and then there's also people, we used to have an inmate that he was in all the time, just petty crime, but he would, on, on his release, he would take his discharge grant, go and get really drunk, mm. stand by window, smash it and just wait for the police to come. Because oh, he wanted he, to go back in. Yeah, he was institutionalised. Mm. He could no longer cope with everyday life. Right. So basically, he did not know what to do. Yeah. He was like, we get three meals a day, we get to see the dentist, mm. we get to see a doctor, we get to do all these things. So we really need to get rid of that mindset. And also, like you said, I mean, there's people who come in there and they might go in for council tax, um, not being able to pay their council yeah. tax, right? Which I don't think you should go to prison for. No. And... They come out an experienced burglar or, yeah. or armed, like they learn. Right. It's a university. Of and crime. how bad is the drugs problem joke. as well? Because I was talking to somebody the other day who said that you know they're now they've asked for um, sort of no fly zones over some prisons in Britain because people have been flying drones and just dropping stuff yeah. into the prison yard. I said I don't think you can get drugs into prisons without at least some of the guards being uh, or the prison officers being complicit in it. Surely. Sometimes it's the prison officers and sometimes it isn't. I mean, I remember when I was at work and we had a, um, we were on the exercise yard and there were just all these dead pigeons. Right. It was like, it yeah. was biblical. I told we this story. Like, oh my God, what is this? Yeah. And this officer kicked this pigeon and he turned over and he was really badly sewn together. Right. And when we opened the pigeon, they were all full of yeah. They just scooped out. I told out this very story yeah. just, just earlier this week because I used to work in Scotland. There's a prison called Socton outside of yeah. Edinburgh and they had exactly that problem. Yeah. And, you, and they're very, I mean, people have been very sort of um, innovative, I suppose about getting drugs into prison. But, I mean, is it... I'm, I'm not, I mean, I don't know whether you decided just to give up the, the job because you'd had enough of it or, or because it was too difficult. But, I mean, people say prison officers now, many of them are, are not really supported. There's not enough of them. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a hard job for them. They're trying to keep the peace, but, they, but it's difficult. Yeah. Um, I mean, what would your kind of... If you were Rishi Sunak and you had five steps, what would you do? Uh, I would definitely improve pay... 
I would give them back housing. When I started, we, we had housing. I actually bought my first flat from the prison service. Right. They were selling it off. Okay. Um, I would make sure... If you want prison officers to not bring in drugs or not be tempted to bring in drugs, then you will uh, pay them properly. Yeah. That will stop that. Um, when I mean, I, shouldn't they really not do it anyway, though? I mean, if of you wanna... course they shouldn't do it. But it, you've got to understand if you're in a position and, and you are really, really struggling outside. Yeah. Then you've also got to... They've cut the training as well. Mm. Um, they've got to train people to not be conditioned because you don't realise. You can speak to an inmate every day. And then, like, the rule was, from when I first started, you're not supposed to sit and talk to an inmate right. every single day right. because they will get information from you. You won't even realise it. Mm. Before you know it, they know what car you drive. Yeah. They know where you live. Right. They know how many kids you've got. They know, you right. know, if you give little clues, they, yeah, yeah. they will sit there and get That's all that That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it's nice, it's nice to and say, let's treat uh, prisoners, you know, like human beings and let's treat them properly. But many of them are very smart people and they will use information against you and they will they yeah. maybe have bad intentions. Yeah, one doesn't count out the other. The other thing that they used to have, which was really important, was cross-recruiting. So when I first started, a lot of the uh, staff were from up north. So they would get the London jail. You'd come down to a London jail and then you'd go up that way. Right. So it would reduce um, the fact that you might know somebody right. in there. All these kind of things which they all stopped and they haven't done anything to replace it yeah. or any kind of... They haven't got any kind of method right. on how would to stop these Would you build more jails going. as well? I would not build more jails. I personally don't. I think there's a lot of people who, in prison who shouldn't be in prison. Right. And um, so for me, I'm really against prison. I'm more for community solutions. Okay. Yeah. And now you're a comedian. Some people <laughs> say it's more frightening than ever. Uh, it was good preparation. Basically, yeah, really? For me. Yeah, yeah, it was. Heck so how's it I've going? Been called Are you everything. happy being a comedian? I'm just back in it after five years. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's okay. It, it's all right. I don't, it's I'm a not, living. It's a living, yeah. Well, if you make a living being a comedian, <laughs> you must be quite a good comedian. Thank you. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, uh, back to the BBC. The Director-General, Tim Davey, has been given a ticking off by Tory backbenchers. Why exactly was the Director-General of the BBC even addressing uh, Tory backbench MPs? Well, we'll find out about that very, very shortly. But don't forget, we'll be taking your calls coming up very shortly, so I want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. We're talking about Labour Party and its confusion uh, over Gaza. Uh, we're talking, of course, about Rachel Reeves and her plagiarism. We're also talking about prison reform, what should happen to it. And what exactly is Rishi Sunak going to do uh, to try and rescue the Tories from the dreadful situation uh, that they find themselves in? I'm joined now by former number 10 Tory advisor, uh, Mr Tim Montgomery. Tim, a very, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Good to be back on. Absolutely right. I feel as though we should kick off, really, with the BBC because they're still a great thorn in the side of, of um, British life, it seems to me. You know, I've just been talking earlier in the hour uh, with Rafe Heidel-Mancou about their uh, insistence on pushing this kind of ridiculous mm. left-wing agenda. We've got uh, Kahinde Andrews on the news round talking about white privilege and telling us all uh, that our kids should learn that being white is a terrible thing. Uh, we've now still got the problem where they're not referring to Hamas as a terrorist group, only saying that some people think they're terrorists. Uh, Tim Davies has been called before the 1922 committee and told by Robert Jenrick that he's never been more disappointed in the state broadcaster. What's going on? I think there is a real, very serious danger for the BBC at the moment that a British jury will lose confidence in the state broadcaster. And I do actually know, Mike, talking to some BBC executives in the last few days, they're very aware of how serious the situation is. 
the problem is a lot of their journalists are just programmed, uh, you know, throughout their careers. It's their instinct is to take the side of the Palestinians. Um, I, you can accuse them of anti-Semitism, and I think there may be elements of that. But I think it's mainly just a, a disposition that's uh, very common amongst a lot of British people that doesn't ever see the fact that Israel faces an existential threat. Uh, it's surrounded by countries that hate it, that want to eliminate it. And a little bit more sympathy from the BBC for that would be appreciated, not least because, in a way, Israel represents Western civilization in that region. The rest of the, uh, most of the rest of the region has values very different from our own. And it strikes me as very odd, really, that the BBC can't be more sympathetic mm. to the one country where gays can be free, where religions can worship freely. You know, Israel is a, too much of a democracy in a way. This system of proportional mm. representation allows even the most small and extreme of parties to get power in the Knesset. Yeah. But the idea that we, we aren't sympathetic to its plight, the fact that it does want to be eliminated by its neighbours, is a great shame and a, a tragedy for the BBC, I think. And how do you see this kind of move? I, I think it's a relatively recent one, um, in my experience, that not just the BBC, but all kind of large corporations, all places that involve uh, employing large numbers of relatively young graduates, have all fallen prey to this kind of wokery, you know, like the banking system that we've seen operating uh, yeah. against people like Nigel Farage. Uh, we've got oil companies now promising to give up drilling for oil. You know, we've got sort of a, a ludicrous left-wing establishment now, which seems to have become very much settled over the past, I would say, five years. Seems to have got worse. Do you agree with that? Um, I do. And I think I think the, thing, the big thing that's changed, um, Mike, is that... Over the last 20 years, really, the amount of regulation that comes from government to these corporations is huge. And so inside almost every private company, and I say private inverted commas now, there are human resource departments which manage an awful lot of employment law. There are uh, departments that manage environmental regulation, equalities regulation, you can go on. So... In ostensibly private firms, you have very big departments full of these the nearly all young graduates of the kind you describe, mm. and their influence on these companies is huge. So you you know you have people at the front line in these companies trying to make money, develop products, invent new um, systems, but actually at the core in the headquarters of all these companies are these departments which are basically performing functions given to them by the state. And I think it's had a profound impact on um, British industry. And you've, you've been mentioning Rachel Reeves quite a bit on your programme today. Yes. I'm not so much worried about the Labour Party spending too much money, although I am worried a bit about that. I think they'll have to be fiscally responsible because there's no money left. What I'm worried about most of all is them expanding these departments, giving private companies even more effectively state responsibilities and turn them into effectively arms of arms of the state, mm. arms of the political correctness that you've described. Yeah, and arms of a state which would have you go to prison uh, under Labour if you misgender somebody. You know, the wokery is now well, I... are fully amongst us. You know, it walks amongst us. It's no longer just a joke over there on the left-hand side uh, of the street where you know, sort of the nutters hang out with all their posters and they, they ring bells and things when people like Tories walk past and they, they hiss at them. You know, this is now mainstream. You know, you and I, basically, are now 
the rebellious punk rockers of 1976. <laughs> well, look, if, if we are in prison, I promise to visit you if you promise to visit me. Although, if we do, I probably will be, a, I'll be even a criminal uh, penalty if I visit someone yeah. like you probably in prison. No, listen, so I'll probably maybe. be in solitary confinement by then, you know, and have sent to Devil's <laughs> Island or something. But it is, I mean, it, to me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to be old enough to remember it. You know, politics used to be a pretty civilised business, you know, and it's become, for me now, so tribal and so yeah. ghastly and so polarised that, you know, we've reached a point where nobody can differ from someone on an opinion yeah. without sort of hating them. Yeah. No, and I think it's because politics has become too much part of our life, really. You know, people... I think it was Lord Helsham, uh, the great veteran Tory, said... The best Conservatives go fox hunting. Mm. Uh, no, sorry, the best Conservatives go to church. Some will go fox hunting. But anyway, some will read. Some will enjoy sports. But none of them will spend too much time on politics. Yeah. Because when politics takes over your life, then you are you do see everybody in terms of the issues that um, are topical. And that, you know, whereas usually um, all those other things can bring people together. Um, and um, we shouldn't have politics as a defining part yeah. of our life in the way we do today. And Keir Starmer's finding this out, isn't he, at the moment? Because he's got himself into a right mm. muddle. I mean, coming from a week ago when he was the, the king of the world, he suddenly managed to get yeah. himself embroiled in this row because of an interview he gave to another radio station. It took him a week to, re to sort of re re recant what he appears to have said uh, in that he said yeah. that he thought Israel had the absolute right to defend itself and to blockade all goods and services going into uh, into Gaza. Um, he's now having a big fight on his hands with some Muslim MPs and some uh, shadow cabinet colleagues, supposedly, who are threatening to resign. I mean, he's in a bit of trouble here, isn't he? I think he is, because we all know the history of the Labour Party with Jeremy Corbyn and all the um, problems they got into with anti-Semitism. Yeah. And I don't think Keir Starmer said very much when he was sat round Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet table about all of that then. He said yeah. he protested, but no-one can remember yeah. when he did. Um, and he's sort of now, like, gone the other way and been the most pro-Israel of um, Labour leaders. But I think it was Ed Miliband about 10 years ago when he was leader, when they were looking at political strategy... They just took a crude calculation, Mike, and it really was very crude. They looked at the number of Muslims in Britain and they looked at the number of Jews in Britain and they decided there was an awful lot more political advantage if they were on the side of British Muslims. Mm. And so you have an awful lot in the Labour Party of, of, of Muslim MPs, of people in the Labour Party who would much rather the Labour Party was sympathetic to sort of Muslim causes yeah. than Jewish causes. It's almost as simple as that. Exactly. And so now Keir Starmer's reaping the whirlwind. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Um, let's finish up, um, Tim, if we may, with the Tories. Um, Rishi Sunak this morning announcing some kind of um, AI safety institute, which I'm sure uh, might be of some use to somebody, but uh, it's kind of they're, a bizarre They're talking thing. about nothing less here in Salisbury, Mike. <laughs> it's, um, everyone's very excited about it. Yes, I know, exactly right. <laughs> Can't wait to get my membership card. But, but Peter Bone... Um, <laughs> When he was um, accused, uh, he says wrongly, of the, um, uh, the, uh, the allegations that came out just the other day, uh, he said it was ridiculous. Um, his, his, the, the, the complaint at the centre of the case has said he had a horrid, brutal, dark experience. He's now suspended or is about to be suspended for bullying. There could be another by-election for the Tories. I mean, is this a case of, of, of sort of bad justice? What do you think? 
I don't know at all. I've always liked um, Peter Bone. We've not always agreed on things, but um, he has been through a semi-judicial process. Uh, there wasn't really much of a rebellion in the House of Commons yesterday when this was could have been put to a vote. I just think it's a, it's a personal tragedy. Yeah. And I suspect there will be a by-election. It won't be too difficult for the Labour Party to organise the amount of signatures they need for a by-election. And all the good that Peter Bone has done in Parliament now will be forgotten. And mm. I'm afraid he'll probably now be remembered for this scandal. And, of course, he won't be the first Tory MP in this Parliament to be remembered for scandal. There's been, there's been far too many, one after another. I, I think this might be the 10th, would it be the 10th by-election of Rishi Sunak's short premiership? You know, most prime ministers can be in power for, for Parliament or yeah. two and not have 10. It's just a bit extraordinary. Well, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, I was talking yesterday and trying to remember how much the Tory majority now is, and I'm assuming it's something like 60-something, isn't it? Yeah, it must be maybe even closer to 50, actually. Which is absolutely incredible. I mean, it seems a very long time ago, doesn't it, from those halcyon days of um, December 2019. I still remember coming into work that night to do an overnight sort of show about the election results and thinking, blimey, it looks as though Corbyn might have edged this because if you watch Sky and you watch some of the other TV shows, they were all talking up the fact that there was huge turnouts in Putney, you know, it was all looking very good, huge Labour votes coming in yeah. and it was going to be the end of the Tories and then suddenly, you know, they got it all wrong again. And there was a sort of feeling yeah. in the air of um, hope. I, I, I don't think that's yeah. too strong a word to use. And then we got to the end of January, um, uh, left the European Union to all intents and purposes and I was actually really optimistic about the next two or three years. And now here we are, yeah. sort of sitting around, not knowing what's going on, really. Yeah. Would you remember that um, game? You may have played it when you were young, um, uh, Mike. It was called Go For Broke. Yes. And the person that won it, you started, I think, with £1,000. Right. The person who lost £1,000 most quickly won the game. That's really been the Conservative Party over the last four or yeah. five years. Started with a majority of 80, they had the world at their feet, and how they've thrown it away through bad ethics, uh, not having any ideas, not sticking to the course. It's going to be, you know, something for historians to study for years to come, and it, it makes my well makes me very sad as a conservative that yeah. we have Mrs. Thatcher would have used this period in power very differently than those who um, have. Uh, being Conservative Prime Ministers yeah. in, in this period have done so. Yeah, I think so. Tim, very wise words. Thank you very much indeed. Good to see you. Tim Montgomery there uh, talking to us uh, from uh, the Shires, I think you'd have to say, uh, down in Salisbury there, where, as he says, they're talking about nothing else uh, but the AI Safety Institute that Rishi Sunak announced he was going to open up today. I mean, it may well be a worry for some, but there are other more pressing concerns, I would have to say, uh, for most of us and for all of you. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place where you get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which is sorely lacking in some places in this country, including sometimes in the political world. Uh, we've seen the latest from the Tory party. Uh, one of their MPs has been suspended by his colleagues in Parliament after an investigation into bullying and sexually inappropriate behaviour, supposedly, with a former member of staff. Peter Bone has denied any wrongdoing, uh, but the Tories are now concerned that his being suspended could trigger 
yet another by-election. Our correspondent Nick Ellenby is in Wellingborough now, uh, the constituency for Peter Bone. Uh, and let's see what he's found out up there. Nick, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Um, yet more problems for the Tory party. I can't remember, I was just saying uh, to Tim Montgomery, I don't even know what the majority is now. I think it might be sort of 60-something or could it be down to 50-something? What is it? Yeah, good afternoon, Mike. Well, uh, they had a working majority of about 68, so that must be down to the low 60s now. Here in Wellingborough, it's pretty damp. I imagine Peter Bone is waiting nervously to see if there'll be a deluge of sign-ups to that petition for a new by-election or just a trickle. Important to remember as well, Mike, he's no longer a Conservative MP. The whip was suspended after those allegations into bullying and uh, sexual misconduct. He denies those allegations. He still denies those allegations. But uh, they only need 10% of uh, sign-ups from here in, in Wellingborough to that petition to trigger a by-election. And the Conservative majority, which he won in the last election, was 18,450. Now, that is less than the Labour Party overturned in Tamworth in October. So Labour Party will be eyeing up this as another potential victory heading towards next year's general election. But you know what? I've spoken to a lot of people around here about Peter Bone, their MP, and the picture I'm getting is of a very devoted local MP. A lot of people saying that he's very quick to answer emails and letters, and he's helped a lot of people as well with, with personal problems. A lot of people told me that. Um, this is what the people of Wellingborough told me about the news of Peter Bone and maybe what should happen to him going forward. Seeing is believing or whatever. I mean, people can go along with comments for the rest of their life and it's not, it's not a yes or it's not a no. I mean, what can you say about that? There's no answer as far as I'm concerned anyway. And did you vote for him before? Would you vote for him again? I've voted him before and I will vote for him again, yeah. It's very important, not only Peter Bourne, but anyone for that matter who is in a public figure. I think um, they should conduct themselves in a reasonable manner. I did vote for him and then I'll vote for him again because I'm happy with him. The job he's doing, maybe some people say something different, but personally I'm really happy with it. Of course, he denies the allegations, but I mean, it's been alleged. It's been alleged um, and he has to prove his innocence. And if, it, and if it's found out that he's actually guilty for what he's done, you know, he needs to resign. So, you know, mixed reaction here in Wellingborough, but a lot of people also weren't aware of those allegations until I put them to them. And also I'm getting a picture here of a few problems in terms of homelessness, not enough stuff for young people to do, and also the housing crisis is it's quite acute here, which is affecting the rest of the country. So I think those are the things that any potential politician wanting to win this seat will have to focus on if there is indeed a by-election here in Wellingborough, Mike. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, Nick Ellaby there reporting in from Wellingborough, Peter Bones' constituents, where there might be a by-election or there might not. Uh, once again, another Tory MP embroiled in, uh, in scandal, I'm afraid. Uh, to react to this situation and everything else that's going on today, uh, let's get Candice Holdsworth's opinion, uh, political commentator, of course. Candice, welcome to the Independent Republic. Good to be back. First time I think you've been in here uh, since we've had this with me anyway, which is great. Um, and, of course, uh, a regular on Plank of the Week. Um, Peter Bone didn't make it onto the list this week. I don't think, but um, you know, he he professes his innocence. I mean, it's difficult to know in these situations. Yeah. You know, Parliament has made a decision. There wasn't much support for him. It did seem yesterday. Mm. Um, if there is another by-election, it's a kind of so what now, isn't it? Really? Yes. Because yes. Because as we sort of hurtle towards the general election, albeit quite slowly, 
Um, I don't think any more by-election will make any difference to the way people think, will they? No. And, you know, from what I've heard from um, journalists very connected to Westminster, they say that Conservative MPs feel just totally exhausted. Yeah. That they've lost their momentum. Mm. They, some of them are even saying maybe we need time out yeah. of power. Right. I mean, there was an excellent article in The Spectator this morning saying how Rishi Sunak has even lost his fizz. Mm. I mean, he looks bit defeated. And I think yeah. that they know that the momentum isn't with them anymore. Well, it can't be great, can it? I mean, we spoke about this the other day, that it was his first anniversary, uh, which had come around pretty quickly, really. There's a Telegraph uh, 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 cartoon this morning from Matt where it says, they say one year of Rishi Sunak is roughly equal to seven Liz Trust premierships. Um, and you kind of go, and, uh, you know, you must wake up every morning and think, can anything work? Can anything go right for me? This morning he was up um, speaking about AI. Uh, and he's setting up an AI safety institute. Yes. And all that ever happens in the wake of him launching these kind of initiatives is, well, haven't you got something more important to do? You know, it may well be that AI is threatening us all and we'll all be killed by a robot at some point in the future. Yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, can you bring down the price of inflation? Can you fix my mortgage? Uh, can you stop the boats, please, if you don't mind? Well, they've gone very quiet on those five pledges. Yes. I mean, especially about inflation, yeah. because it's not possible for him to bring down inflation. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's what the Bank of England is charged with doing. Yes. And it was quite foolish, actually, to hitch the Conservative Party's fortunes to that, over something over mm. which they had no control. Do you control. know, I think the reason they did it, though, was exactly because they had no control over it, and they thought because they expected it to just come down, yes, where they can claim the credit on yes. the basis that, well, look, we've managed to get the inflation figures down, yes. but actually nothing to do with that, because all they've done since claiming that they were going to do it uh, is give a load of pay rises out to public sector workers, which, of course, hasn't exactly helped. I know. And the thing is, the Times as well did a poll, and people aren't necessarily thrilled with Starmer. They have a lot of criticisms of the Labour Party, but there's almost like there's just been a mood shift mm. in the country that people yeah. want change. Yes. I mean, I don't know if they're going to get the right type of change. Yeah. I mean, I think the Labour Party still has a lot of problems. Yeah. I mean, Peter Hitchens has been saying, no, now is not the time to vote Labour. Mm. But, you know, in a lot of these Conservatives' constituencies, Peter Bones included, those, I think, with less than 20,000 are said to be, majority are said yeah. to be under threat. I think so. But I think the real worry for Keir Starmer is not so much will he be the next Prime Minister, but will he actually get a big enough majority to do anything? Yes. Because I would suspect, if, if, if I was a betting man, uh, which I'm not really, particularly when it comes to politics, um, you know, the, 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 the short odds are that he gets a very, very slim minority government yeah. and that he ends up having to kind of you know, cobble things together and try and get laws passed with the help of other parties and all of that kind of thing. Certainly that's what Lib Dems are hoping for. Yeah. Because otherwise his, his, his swing has to be pretty enormous to get a big enough majority to be able to govern properly. So I think that's probably what might end up happening. And in the meantime, he's got problems of his own because of his stance on the Middle East, because yes. of the answer that he gave yes. uh, to another radio station a couple of, uh, well, over a week ago now. Um, the, the, the Labour Party still can't quite get rid of the ghost of anti-Semitism. No, I mean, it's such a huge divide mm. in Labour. And it's very interesting because, I mean, Starmer, at the beginning of all this, when everything broke out after October 7th, you know, he took a really strong stance yeah. on things. He seemed very self-assured. And now he's backtracking mm. because he's actually very at odds with the grassroots right. on this issue. Which in the end tells you exactly why he's not at the moment ready for prime time because he's not a leader. He tries to please people. That's not leadership. Yes, you know, I agree. He tries to agree with everyone or the last person that left the room. That's not leadership either. If you try to please everybody, you will end up pleasing nobody. And I think like the BBC, for instance, has discovered this. I mean, yeah. they try to appeal to all different sections of their audience, yeah. and then they just annoy everybody. Right. I mean, what you have to do is you say, 
this is my judgment yes. in this situation. Right. This is what I believe to be best. Yeah. And you stick by that. Yeah. You don't allow yourself to be captured by lots of different factions. No, exactly right. I mean, we spoke to uh, a Labour MP earlier on in the show uh, who said, oh, yes, we've had a meeting and we're going to have more meetings. But the problem is that it's not been resolved because no. clearly there are people in the Labour Party who want Keir Starmer uh, to be less pro-Israel and more pro-Palestinian. And they want him to shift his position because at the moment his position is still pretty unclear. You know, this ridiculous assumption uh, or assertion that he made that, oh, actually I was asking, answering the question before. The Times has helpfully put out a transcript of the way the questions were asked and the way he answered them. And it makes no sense at all yes. uh, for him to say that he was answering the first the, the question before because it, the way he's answered it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and you're so right. That is not what you want from a leader. You no. want a leader to say, this is what I believe. Yeah. This is what I truly think. Right. And a, re a, a leader with true integrity would say, well, if I'm at that much odds with my own party, then I'll resign. Yeah. Because you stick by your principles right. in situations like principles. this. Principles. Now, that's a word you don't hear very often I in know. politics. I mean, he is so desperate, though, like many uh, MPs are to grasp the, the, you know, the final kind of, uh, you know, the triumphant cup yes. of victory, which is to get into number 10 Downing Street. Because if you're, not, if you're an MP and you don't want to be Prime Minister, there's probably something wrong with you. Yes. But then they get to a point where they become so ambitious for the actual job that they don't have any principles anymore. They don't believe in anything anymore. I know, and they sort of just sort of mould themselves to fit what they think yeah. focus groups want. Right. And really, is that what people want? Is that what we look for in our leaders? You know, someone who's just purely reactive. I don't think we do. No. But I think that's what politics is now. I think it's about appealing to lots of different constituencies because that's how you win elections. Yeah. Well, I mean, we shall see how that goes. Meanwhile, the next uh, Labour story that we've been dealing with this morning was the news that came just before we uh, pretty much opened the show that Rachel Reeves has been accused, the shadow chancellor, uh, of using, shall we say, uh, nefarious means to copy some parts of the new book that she's got out about women uh, uh, through through economic history. As I said earlier, it doesn't sound like a great page turner for the Christmas uh, present bag. But um, but I mean, those of us who have been in the business of writing, uh, you've been doing it for many years. I used to do it a lot more than I do now. Mm. You know, everybody knows what plagiarism is, yes. and if you've done it, you know you've done it. Ooh. She's saying that she hasn't done it, but the FT have done a study of this book and they found twenty instances. Uh, of directly copied passages and paragraphs and sentences from things like Wikipedia, from The Guardian, and also uh, from uh, a foreword written by Hilary Benn, a fellow Labour MP. That's shocking. Yeah. If true, that's shocking. Mm. I mean, that's one way to destroy the PR for your book and to completely undermine your reputation as a writer. Yeah. I mean, that is such a big no-no. Mm. And this is someone who's possibly going to be the next chancellor. I know. This is quite a big thing, actually. Well, I think it is because, again, it gives the impression of uh, of the character of the, the MP, doesn't yes. it? Whether it's yes. a man, whether it's a woman. Um, you know, you see how they behave to their colleagues. This is one of the reasons that Starmer's got an issue with his character because he used to stand full square behind Jeremy Corbyn. Yes. He used to call him his friend. He used to say that he should be the next Prime Minister. Now he treats him like a sort of piece of dirt on his shoe yes. and thinks that we're all supposed to forget yes, that this guy used to defend him to the, to, the, to the hilt. It's like this amnesia. It's like the Corbyn era never happened. They didn't... They. I mean, Rachel Reeves did have a bit of integrity mm. in that era, but, Je but Keir Starmer, I mean, he served in his shadow right. cabinet. I mean, it just shows what an opportunist he is. Yeah. I mean, for me, in these times of crisis... I don't want opportunists. I no. don't mind a bit of pragmatism. Right. Pragmatism can be a valuable yeah. thing in a time of crisis. 
but not opportunism. No. Not weakness like that. No, absolutely not. Speaking of opportunists, Matt Hancock's back in the news because apparently he, seven days ago, set up himself as the director of a dyslexia charity, said he couldn't wait to get going, said he couldn't wait to get on with it because he's been dyslexic all his life and this is the big issue that he wants to push forward because he really, really, really doesn't want the money. He just wants to be helpful. Um, he's now stepped down seven days later and handed it to some property consultant to run. Nobody knows why. Yes. I mean, he just seems to go, Matt Hancock just seems to go from one thing to the other. Yes. I mean, he was trying this whole new reality TV career. Yeah. Then he was doing very odd things on TikTok. Yes, we played that famous uh, Barbie song that he did on the beach somewhere in, I think it was Thailand. Or something. I mean, some of the stuff on there, he did like one of those aging filters. He was listing his favourite right. chocolate bars. I mean, like really unserious stuff right. for someone who was at one point the health secretary. Yeah. And now he's heading up a charity. Right. And I just think he's just trying to brazen out the scandal, basically. Mm. I mean, he thinks that he can just create a whole new image for himself but he can't because what happened was quite serious. Right. And people aren't just necessarily going to accept this new mat no. that he's trying to fashion. In fact, people have rejected it. They have. I mean, and also they're reminded of what he did and what he said yes. when he was in government, when he was the health secretary, uh, when these COVID inquiry questions are being put. And he's, he's still yet, I think, to appear for the next section of it. Um, but an awful lot of the WhatsApp messages would suggest um, that, one, uh, his, uh, his colleagues didn't think too highly of him. No. And two... He didn't think too highly of them yes. and was doing everything sort of off the cuff. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, you look back to the um, uh, Profumo scandal, yeah. Don Profumo. He actually spent years trying to restore his reputation yes. and to make good for mm. what he did. Right. He didn't suddenly just break out of Parliament and go, OK, I'm going to be this whole new like person and you're all going to think I'm wonderful. Mm. I mean, he realised he'd done wrong. And he had to make people trust him again. Yeah. But I just don't think Matt Hancock has grasped that. He hasn't, no. And he does like to be at the centre of things. Yes. This is why I wonder whether the reason for him resigning from this charity is going to be revealed at a later date. You know, does he want to do something else? Has he got something else in the pipeline? Has he been offered some other kind of job? Because it's not like him to take a step back from something. Well, apparently they raised very little. They did an online yeah. fundraiser. 700 quid, thereabouts. <laughs> I mean, just nothing. Yeah. I mean, is he the right person to head up this charity? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. And I presume there are already dyslexia charities yes. that exist in the big wild world. It's not like he's the only person that's ever had dyslexia or discovered that there should be a charity to cover it. See, that's such a good point. Mm. Is he actually filling a gap or is yeah. this all about... And I'm just speculating, is this all about his image, about burnishing... burnishing his image. Yes. I mean, it's almost like this portfolio of stuff that they've tried to create for Matt Hancock mm. since he was suspended as an MP. You know, so he's doing these TV appearances, a social media profile, now heading up some sort of charity. Yeah. But I, it's just not working. And I almost feel guilty hating on him. But, you know, he was health secretary during a really serious time in this country. And there are a lot of questions to be answered about it. And I just don't like the way he's sort of, in this very crass way, just trying to brazen it out and pretend that it never happened. Yeah, and I know that's personal. I know that's personal. I'm being very personal. But I think a lot of people feel that way. They do. No, I mean, he is very much um, a, a sort of a, a hated figure. Yes. And while you wouldn't want to necessarily, you know, promote that kind of feeling, but people do have very visceral feelings about what happened during COVID. Um, yes. You know, even now, there are things that happen that will never be undone. Yes. People who couldn't see their loved ones, people who couldn't travel. I mean, I was one. I didn't see my mother for two years. Uh, I didn't see my children for quite a long time at the yes. beginning. You know, you didn't know whether travelling was going to be uh, safe enough. You didn't no. know whether going out was going to be okay. Yes. You know, there was so little kind of actual proper useful information. Yes. And when you find out that it was all being run 
uh, by these characters who didn't really know what they were doing. It's quite shocking. It's kind of like, what? Yes. Really? And I, I think there's been a huge loss of faith in politics mm. and politicians. I mean, some of it's taken quite a, a nasty turn and it's become very conspiratorial. I think we've all seen the huge rise in conspiratorial thinking right. since COVID, I mean, right. especially online. But I think that that is what happens when people lose faith in yes. the way that they do and they become very suspicious sure. of people in authority. Absolutely. And it's quite a sad consequence. I think we live well, in a conspiratorial does. age yeah, now. Yeah, it does not lead to people. I mean... I have conversations with people all the time who call this show and who have done for years and who mean very well, but who say, look, how can you trust this government? Yes. And so it's very difficult to convince them that you can trust them about anything. I know. And I'm not just talking about this government, but any government, because of things that have been said in the past. You know, I mean, we're now having conversations about Iraq vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the situation in Israel because people say, well, look what they did to get us into war in Iraq. Yes. You know, how can we believe them now? Yes. You know, let's talk about that, though, because we've got another weekend coming up. Um, you and I have spoken about this before, but you know the reaction on the streets of London and other cities has been has been bizarre to yes, say the least. Yeah. One of the things that we've seen an awful lot of on social media, we're going to have a look at now, is instances of particularly young people going around tearing down yes. pictures of hostages. Some of them children, some of them babies, uh, which have been put up around various different sites in the city to try and raise awareness and to try and convince people that you know this is what's happened. Hamas have taken these yes. kids hostage. And what on earth are these people thinking, tearing these pictures down? What can, what can their motivation for that be? Some of it is pretty shocking. And when they're confronted about it, you know, some of them will say stuff like, oh, it didn't happen. Right. You know, there's this whole theory online that it didn't happen. And that's mm. exactly why people have put up this, these posters, to remind them how this started. You know, you've got other people who'll just demean them and they'll yeah. say things like, they're settlers, they're colonists, they deserve it. And it's this very poison, poisonous, toxic mindset that's mm. taken hold of sections of the left, which has this oppressor versus oppressed. And whatever the oppressed does to the oppressor mm. is justified. Yes. Anything is justified. Yeah. Even kidnapping children, yeah. murdering their parents, oh, murdering yeah. them. And which is a very scary narrative when you think right there about it. Candice, thanks is. very much indeed. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the migrant crisis and where we go from here. But before we do that, uh, let me just update you on the situation over in the United States of America. Overnight, uh, you would have heard uh, that at least 16 people have been shot dead in mass shootings at a restaurant and a bowling alley in Lewiston, Maine, on the northeast coast of the United States, according to multiple uh, law enforcement sources. One councillor has told CNN a death toll could be as high as 22, but there's still a manhunt going on uh, for a man who is believed to be Robert Card, a 40-year-old who's being sought as a person of interest. Uh, he is uh, a specialist in uh, guns, as it turns out. He was uh, a member of the armed forces. He was sectioned uh, for mental health reasons as well. Um, and this adds, I'm afraid, to a list of 565 mass shootings reported across the United States this year alone. Uh, obviously, we'll bring you updates throughout the day here at Talk TV, but Piers Morgan, uncensored tonight from 8 o'clock, uh, will be looking into uh, the whys and the wherefores and all of the details of what is exactly has happened in this latest mass shooting episode uh, in the United States of America. 
in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, so make sure you keep your eyes open for that. Piers Morgan Uncensored with Piers Morgan tonight at 8pm on Talk TV. Right now, though, uh, let's talk about something a little bit closer to home. Uh, Nigel Jacqueline joins me from the No to North Eye campaign. Nigel, welcome uh, to the newly inspired studios here at, uh, at Talk TV. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Um, since the last time I saw you, we've gone up in the world. Um, you've got some things to tell me about as well. But we covered the story yesterday, broken in the Times, um, that the site in Bexhill, or near Bexhill, uh, down in Sussex, which uh, Nigel's campaigning to stop being used as a migrant uh, centre, a migrant holding centre, uh, has recently been bought, it would appear, by the Home Office for 15 million quid. That's 15 million quid of our money, by the way. It's not their money. Uh, they didn't borrow it from anyone. It's our money, taxpayers' money. The problem is, is they bought it from a business uh, partnership who had previously bought it about a year earlier for something like six million. So they've done rather well. They've done some very good business with the Home Office. But you have to ask the question, Nigel, uh, do the Home Office know what they're doing when it comes to buying property? Yeah. You'd like to sell them your house, I bet. Yeah, yeah, probably for five million. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they probably pay it, right? Yeah. So yeah. You're, you've been campaigning uh, uh, on this subject for, for a good many months now. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the latest situation? You've been talking to councillors down there. You've yeah. had uh, rallies and all the rest of it. Yeah. It looks like, I think the last time we spoke, you thought this is unlikely to become a destination for migrants for quite some time? So at the moment, um, a decision still has not been taken about whether it will actually be used. So they've bought it, paid a lot for it, right. um, and we don't know whether they're going to use it. Right. If it is used, it will be as a secure detention centre, so right. there'll be fencing. Um, oh, so people won't be allowed out of it then? Correct, which is less worse. Yes. Um, the MP uh, had a meeting with local residents, which I attended um, a few weeks ago, He's promised to look into a bunch of things like security, yes. lighting and so forth, right. um, and also compensation. So, I, I mean, if it's true that they can just give away nine million quid, you know, the extra yeah. profit, um, maybe they've got another nine million quid well, to compensate the residents. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it would sound right if you were a, a, a Tory government spokesman to say that, yes, we're not going to use this as a, as a sort of... A, a hotel, if you like, but yep. we are going to use it as a detention centre yes. where we would put... Because they used to do this. I think we've had this conversation before um, where they used to have a detention centre at Heathrow when people who came into the country illegally were put in. Um, yep. This is many years ago. Uh, they would then go before a tribunal judge who would decide whether or not they were allowed to stay. And if they weren't allowed to stay, they would be deported yeah. out of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if they're going to get through this ridiculous backlog they've got of 170,000 people, they're going to need somewhere to put people... Um, while they are considered to be illegal, right? Yeah, yeah. We support the idea of detaining people and deporting them, and if that stops the boats and stops arrivals, right. then the place will be empty. Right. Um, one of our group actually worked as a um, in with the Home Office, taking people back to Albania. Right. You know, and every week an airplane took off from the airport. It was their job to. Um, go with the people who are being sent back home. Right. So you know, we just need. So it to can be done. There. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the thing. You know, and it's not anything as simple as just, you know, getting new agreements with different countries. And it's not just anything as simple as having left the European Union. It's more difficult. Mm -hmm. It's literally just putting a few things in place so that people won't want to come. Because at the moment, people come here because they know that as soon as they arrive, they'll be taken to a hotel. I mean, we heard this week that, you know, the government say, oh, we're going to move them out of the luxury hotels. Oh, well, that's all right then. And we're going to put them in, you know, less nice hotels, but that's still putting them in hotels, you know. Yeah, and they they might be desperate, but actually 
they're more determined. And mm. we think that there are a lot more deserving people back where they've come from. And really, the help needs to be focused there. Yeah. Because you kind of, if, if everybody leaves the country, um, the country can't rebuild itself. No, it? so exactly. The help's needed back where the, the source is. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, you published a list of some of the hotel locations on your website. Um, I don't know whether that was a national picture or whether just a local picture. Where so you there are. is a national list that was shared on Facebook, mm. and we merely reshared it on right. Facebook. And is it right to say that there's something like four to five hundred of these hotels? I can't remember. I think there was a hundred. There's a lot. Right. Whether the, it had all of them on the list, but in Eastbourne, where we are, there are five to eight. Right. Um, some of just them... what in Eastbourne alone. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it, it's kind of totally changed the dynamic of the part of town that, mm. that they're in. Yeah, um, but well, it's bound to, isn't it? Yeah, but we had a message from Sussex Police saying that our sharing the list might cause division within the community. Oh yeah, is that is that an offence now then, causing division within the community? <sighs> I mean, I don't think it is. And why are the police bothering with a group like yourselves who are simply giving out information which should be publicly available? Yeah, yeah. So we, we actually ran nine protests with them and we got on really well. Mm. We had no trouble. With um, the police? Yeah, right. yeah. The police were supportive because what they saw... So when we were on Little Common Roundabout, there'd be lots of bits of support. Like, yeah, yeah. They could see that the public, the vast majority of people, supported yeah. um, what we were doing. But this is the thing, isn't it? Because whenever you talk to politicians, because there was a story the other day, um, uh, we sent a reporter up to um, one of the sites where um, a hotel is supposedly going to be shut down in January because yeah. it's going to go back to being a proper hotel. Mm -hmm. um, and they wheeled out uh, a local councillor to speak to our reporter and who said, oh, well, of course, the local uh, people here are very supportive of having refugees in their community. But as soon as we spoke to the people in the community... Uh, they weren't very supportive of it at all. So the politicians kind of try and give this message that everybody in Britain wants refugees where they live. They don't. Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely the case mm. with campaigning in the local elections. Um, I would say out of the 200 people I spoke to back in April, there were only two who were supportive mm. of um, accommodating asylum right. seekers in North Island. Right. And certainly most people, when you ask them, if, even if they say, oh, we must do our share and we must help out and these are desperate people fleeing war and persecution and all the rest of it, you still go, OK, well, do you want them at the end of your road? Mm -hmm. They say no. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the, the community... Which doesn't, doesn't make them bad people, by the way. It's just normal human behaviour. Yeah, but, I mean, if it is used as a secure site, we're still worried that people who've helped them get over here um, will break in to let them out. Yes, um, we just don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And actually, if they are going to um, detain and deport people, they kind of need somewhere to do it like next week, mm. don't they? Well, I would have um, thought so. They don't need a decision in January in no. the 12 months to build the place. No, they well, that's, that's exactly the problem because, I mean, you know better than me that the North Eye site is not yet ready for habitation, yeah. is it? They'd have yeah. to do quite a lot of work to it. Yeah, it needs a complete... Um, refurb, yeah. and if they're going to detain people, they need to start detaining them soon. Right. And up in Scampton, the yeah. former RAF base, which, where, yes. which is where the dam buses emanated from, of course, famously yeah. many, many decades ago, um, you're in touch with them. What's the latest going on up there? So we've been up there a few times over the past month. Um, there was a stop order yeah. um, from the local council instructing the contractors to stop working, the security people... To stop preparing it for migrants, in other yeah, words, yeah. Yeah, and um, they've actually done quite a bit of work, but what's happened is that there have been a few arrests, 
one of the guys was arrested for trying to enforce the stop order. Right. So this is kind of upside down policing again, mm. isn't it? So the police are actually operating against the stop order which has been issued by the local council? Correct, yeah. And the police apparently have said that it's not their job to enforce stop orders, but I don't think it's their job to stop members of the public trying to... Trying to help them to help to happen. No, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So one final thing, Nigel. What's the next step for you? Have you got any more meetings set up? So we've now basically got three months um, in which we need to ensure that if it does happen, it's not too bad. Okay. Um, and to keep pushing the message that we don't want it and actually the business case for it probably doesn't add up. Mm. There'll be some way that they can do it faster yeah. and cheaper. Absolutely right. Nigel Jackson, thank you very much indeed. Uh, no to North Eye, you can find that uh, online, of course. One of the many parts of Britain uh, which is being prepared, if you like, uh, for some form uh, of housing for migrants, whether it be a detention centre, whether it be a holding centre, whether it be a place where people can go and live having been granted asylum. There's a lot of it going on. We'll keep you posted on all of it as it develops right here, of course, uh, on Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.